Rudolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Filiberto Guglielmi Di Valentina Di Antongela Almost Rudolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Filiberto Guglielmi Di Valentina Di Antonguela Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Theater of the Golden Silence podcast. Your tickets have been taken, and the theater is filling up with all sorts of biographical information. And a theater filling up with biographical information can mean only one thing. It means today's showing is going to be a bit different from the normal film-specific discussion that we usually have. This time, you fine listeners will be getting some life discussion. Before we dip into the life and times of Rudolph Valentino, I just want to remind you to follow the Golden Silence cast on Instagram for the most up-to-date information on this piccolo podcast. It is there that I will let you know what films are coming up and how best to watch them so we can reconvene here for a little infotainment amongst friends. Now, when I started this podcast, there were certain movies, genres, and talents that I knew would play big parts in this show going forward. Rudolph Valentino was one of those people, one of those topics I knew would play a big part in my learning about silent film. From his movies, to his popularity, to his legend, and his early death, he was definitely someone who deserved and was worthy of more than a two-minute bio before a movie discussion. So, as you remember, in the last episode, we talked about Cobra. We watched Cobra, talked about it. I kind of went a little scanty on the details of Valentino's life. I did that knowing that this episode was coming up. And if anyone deserved a full episode dedicated to them, it's the great lover himself. So we are going full-on in-depth here into the life of the great lover. Now, Rudolph Valentino wasn't always Rudolph Valentino. He was born Rudolfo Alfonso Raffaello Pierre Filiberto Guglielmi di Valentina di Antangela. This is a pretty great name, and one thing I have learned, Italians are incredibly generous with name allocation. And on a side note, I have also learned that I am terrible at Italian pronunciation, so I'm going to try and get through this episode the best I can. He was born on May 6, 1895, 1895, in Casa Italy. His father, Giovanni, was Italian, and he served in the Italian army and was a veterinarian later on. His mother, Marie, was French. His father died when he was only 11 years old. Uh, as far as siblings are concerned, Rudolph had an older brother and a younger sister. He also had an older sister, but she had died in infancy. He was a poor student as a child, uh, people have said, in part due to his good looks. They say he was so handsome, his teachers and mother frequently overindulged him. But he showed an aptitude for agriculture, he showed an aptitude for gardening, and he graduated from an agricultural school and loved it, enjoyed doing that, but struggled to find work. So he packed his bags some money from his mom, 
and he left for the United States when he turned 18 in 1913. He was processed at Ellis Island at the age of 18 on December 23, 1913. Valentino never applied for naturalization and remained an Italian citizen until his death. Now that he was in the States, he again struggled to find work. This was certainly a down time for Valentino. Going back to his arrival, Valentino had this to say. The loneliest ebb of my life came on that Christmas Eve, only one day after my arrival in New York. The abyss of loneliness. I ate a solitary dinner in a small cafe, and the very food tasted bitter with my unshed tears. One doesn't dare cry in America. It is unmanly here. Valentino would bop around New York City doing odds and ends employment-wise. He bussed tables and got back to gardening for a bit before getting into a groove as a dancer. He was first hired as a tango dancer, making $50 a week. He soon found steady work as a taxi dancer. Now, if you've never heard of a taxi dancer, a taxi dancer is a paid dancer in partner's dances. Taxi dancers were often hired to dance with their customers on a dance-by-dance -dance basis. And Valentino proved to be one of the most popular in town. Now, eventually, Valentino eventually befriended a Chilean heiress named Blanca de Sol, who was unhappily married to businessman John de Sol, with whom she had a son. Whether Blanca and Valentino actually had a romantic relationship is unknown, but when the de Sol couple divorced, Valentino took the stand in support of Blanca de Sol's claims of infidelity on her husband's part. Now, this definitely kind of screwed Valentino. After he did this, and Blanca de Sales got her divorce that she wanted, she left him high and dry, and only managed to anger the Mr. de Sales. And when this happened, John DeSalles reportedly used his political connections to have Val Valentino arrested on unspecified vice charges. He lived, if I remember correctly, he lived in a building that reportedly had a brothel behind it or in the nearby vicinity. And with some trumped-up charges, he was taken, taken into custody. And the evidence was flimsy at best. And after a few days in jail... Valentino's, Valentino, Valentino's bail was lowered from $10,000, which is nuts, to $1,500. Um, following the well-publicized trial and subsequent scandal, Valentino could not find employment. And in an interesting side note, shortly after the trial, Blanca de Sales fatally shot her ex-husband during a custody dispute over their son. And fearful of being called as a witness in another sensational trial, Valentino left town and joined a traveling musical that led him to the West Coast. As an aside from this turn of events, DeSalles was eventually acquitted in the murder in the murder by shooting of her ex-husband. The jury ended up siding with her as an abused woman and let her go. By 1917, Valentino was working as a travel was working in traveling theatrical shows. These jobs moved Valentino officially to the West Coast. After stops in Utah and Los Angeles, he found himself a small role in a theatrical production 
of a show called Nobody Home. It was in San Francisco that Valentino met actor Norman Carey, and it was Carey who would eventually nudge Valentino to take a shot at a career in silent film. Now, in Los Angeles, Valentino got his, his own place and started to pursue act, an acting career. He was able to afford this now thanks in large part to his dancing. He danced, taught dance, and was able to build a network, I guess you could say, of older female clientele who were more than happy to contribute financially. By 1919, Valentino was making his way in Hollywood. This early point, though, his tall, dark, and foreign status made him perfect for certain parts. If you guessed that he would make a great villain, then you would make a great movie executive in the teens. Like a Facebook quiz telling you which flavor of Laffy Taffy you would be, this here quiz qualifies you for some level of movie executive ship. Valentino had this to say about his early characters that he had to play. I usually played out-and-out heavies. No one else saw me in any other role. No one else had ever believed that I could be anything but a heavy. It was a small role in the drama Eyes of Youth that showed what potential lay inside him. He acted opposite Clara Kimball Young in that picture. And he has this to say about the picture. I, it was a heavy in a picture with Clara Kimball Young that June Mathis saw me and decided to cast me as Julio. There is the man for Julio, she said. He and no other. Now I want you to remember that name of June Mathis. She will play a crazy big role going forward in Valentino's life, personally and professionally, as well as, well, into the afterlife. And that role of Julio he spoke of, that is coming soon as well. Now, any conversation about Rudolph Valentino at some point is going to involve women. And then, at this point, we're sitting in 1919. The countdown on Valentino's mortal coil clock has ticked down to his final six years. Like any good sex, like any sex symbol worth his salt, women play a big part of these last six years. Specifically, for the purpose of this program, there are three that I feel play significant roles from this point on. Try as he might to avoid controversy, Valentino never quite stayed clear. Remember, he hit the bricks out of New York under scandalous circumstances, and now he was a struggling actor in Hollywood. It was at a part party that he first meets Gene Acker. Now, before we get too far into the story of Rudolph and Jean, let's take a quick detour and get acquainted with Valentino's first wife. Spoiler alert. Jean Acker was born Harriet Ackers on October 23rd, 1893 in Trenton, New Jersey. Jean was doing some acting in vaudeville shows until moving to California in 1919. When she got to Hollywood, she became more than friends with actress Ala Nazimova. It was this romance with Nazimova that led to numerous film roles throughout the 10s and 20s. Many things at this point in history were taboo, and homosexuality was certainly on that list. That leads us squarely into the union of Acker and Valentino. After these two meet at a party, they do what any couple would do to cover up the bride's lesbianism. They get married after about two months together. 
Acker hopes this course of action will tidy up her personal life a bit. To no one's surprise, though, she soon regrets this impulsive endeavor. And if you were unsure of her regret, she proved it by locking her new hubby out of the bedroom on their wedding night, and their marriage never was consummated. The two non-lovebirds would remain legally married until 1921. At that point, though, a lot of craziness and legal shenanigans will ensue. But let's slow things down. That's getting a little bit ahead of our little story time. Needless to say, his personal life was in various levels of disarray. His professional life, though, was just about to get on track. Between 1919 and his breakout role in Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, he had had roles in 13 films. Some roles were bigger than others, but his part in Eyes of Youth that we talked about earlier came during this stretch of time and really showed his acting chops and what he could do given a chance. Now let's, let's dive a little bit into Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's 1921, and Rudolph Valentino is about to explode into the public consciousness of the worldwide film-going community. Maybe not explode, per se, but seductively smolder into film-goers' hearts. This huge break comes in the film Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It is a World War I film based on the novel of the same name by Vincente Blasco Ibanez. The director of the film was Rex Ingram. Earlier I talked about June Mathis and her connection to Valentino. She saw a star during the filming of Eyes of Youth with Valentino and made sure he was cast as Julio in this picture. But who is June Mathis? And how did she have so much power in the 20s in a male-dominated industry? Well, June Mathis was born on January 30, 1887 in Leadville, Colorado. In addition to being an accomplished screenwriter, Mathis was the first female executive for Metro MGM, and at only 35 years old, she was the highest paid executive in Hollywood. In an essay for the San Francisco Silent Film Festival on silentfilm.org, Margarita Landazuri talks about Mathis's involvement in this picture. The creative dynamo who put Ingram, Valentino, and Blasco Ibanez together was Metro's top screenwriter, June Mathis. Mathis, who is an all but title of producer, had read Blasco Ibanez's popular novel and persuaded her bosses to buy the book, negotiating a favorable deal with the Spanish author. She wrote the screenplay and selected Rex Ingram to direct. Having noticed the dancer and minor actor whose dark good looks had typecast him as a villain or a gigolo, Mathis felt that Rudolph Valentino had the sexual magnetism the leading role of Julio required. Ingram had to be convinced to cast the unknown actor, but Mathis was adamant, and she worked with Ingram to draw a nuanced performance out of Valentino. With superstardom on his doorstep, personal and professional issues were surfacing. While Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse would prove to be a huge critical and commercial success, his bosses at Metro Pictures seemed to not share June Mathis's faith in the Italian. They refused to give him a raise and forced him into a bit part on a film called Uncharted Seas, which, quality-wise, role-wise, not something he wanted to do 
coming off a huge star-making turn in Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It was also about this time that the failed marriage to Gene Acker finally, sorta, kinda-ish, came to a legal conclusion. Possibly. Maybe? We'll see? More on this in a bit. But for now, let's hear a bit more from Landazuri about this bit of Valentino life. Before the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse opened, actress-producer Alan Nazimova cast Valentino as Armand in her version of Camille. The art director and costume designer was Natasha Rambova, a former ballerina whose aristocratic aloofness belied her origins as Wilfred Shaughnessy of Salt Lake City. Valentino fell for Rambova, and after initial resistance, she eventually warmed to him. Rambova would become Valentino's second wife, muse, and greatest creative influence. Valentino's final film for Metro was an example of the band getting back together. The members of this band were June Mathis writing, Rex Ingram directing, and former co-star Alice Terry joining forces with Valentino. This flick received critical acclaim and did very well at the box office, but still unable to snag any pay raises or any better treatment or respect, Valentino left. The craziness of the Latin Lovers 1921 continued. For every success, there was a touch of hassle and trouble to follow. According to the Toronto Film Society, one film company's trash would soon become Famous Players Lasky Company's treasure. Earlier in that year, 1921, on or about March 6th, Jesse Lasky had attended the premiere of the film version of The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And even though it was the product of a rival company, Metro, not yet Metro Golden Mayor, he was as thrilled by it as he had been six years earlier by the birth of a nation. He was also very impressed by the unknown young Italian actor who played the leading role, and he wished ruefully that this Rudolph Valentino had been discovered by his own company instead of Metro. Great was his astonishment when a few months later, Rudolph Valentino called on him in person looking for work. Incredible as it seems, Metro, not realizing they had had a gold mine on their hands, had not bothered to put him under contract. He had made three more pictures for them, but all at the same salary at which, as an unknown, he had been grudgingly entrusted with the leading role in Four Horsemen, which was now proving such a smash hit all over the country. If Metro wasn't interested in him, Lasky certainly was, and lost no time in signing him up, and then set about to find suitable material for him. His next big film would be The Sheik in 1921, and that suitable material that we were just talking about would come in the form of The Sheik, a popular novel by Edith Maud Hall. Lasky had purchased the rights to this book earlier with no concrete plan at the time of how best to use it. This first film for Valentino under, famous player, under the famous player's Lasky banner was directed by George Melford and starred, in addition to Valentino, Agnes Ayers and Adolf Menju. Valentino played the role Sheikh Ahmed Ben Hassan. 
This film is the story of a charming Arabian sheik who becomes infatuated with an adventurous, modern-thinking English woman and abducts her to his home in the Saharan desert. Critical reception to the film was mixed, but its appeal to audiences was undeniable. This is, again, from the Toronto Film Society. American women, starved for romance by their workaday, prosaic husbands and sweethearts, found in Valentino the dream lover whose attitude toward women was an excitingly delicate balance between worshipful respect and ruthless seduction. The Sheik was a commercial success, setting records upon its various premieres. In its first week of release, it set attendance records at two of New York's biggest theaters. In Sydney, Australia, the picture ran for six months, and a theater in France ran the movie for 42 weeks. It was also Valentino's first film to show in his native Italy. After a string of hits for famous players Lasky, Valentino began work on another addition to his greatest hits catalog. The film was blood and sand, and it was one of Valentino's favorites. In fact, he liked it so much, he said this about it. The part I liked best was my role in blood and sand. If I had died, I would have liked to be remembered as an actor by that role. I think it my greatest, he would say. When things work, it is wise to, consent to continue such endeavors. Blood and Sand takes that idea and runs with it. First, base the film on a novel by Vicente Blasco Ibanez. Check. Second, have writer June Mathis write the script. Another check. Now, with those pieces in place, filming commenced on Blood and Sand for a 1922 release. Joining Valentino cast-wise was Lila Lee as Carmen and Nita Naldi as Doña Sol. This film marks the first of a few successful pairings of Valentino and Nita Naldi, which one of those later on down the line was Cobra, which we talked about in the last episode. Rudolph Valentino played the lead role of bullfighter Juan Gallardo. Los Angeles Times reporter Kevin Thomas described the film thusly. The Blood and Sands hero is a poor, naive young man who becomes Spain's top bullfighter, marries his demure, barren childhood sweetheart, Lila Lee, but falls prey to the utterly heartless Nita Naldi's outrageously voluptuous and witty vamp. Lavishly produced, Blood and Sand is heady stuff in which the timelessly charismatic Valentino, who could be a subtle actor and whose anguish here seems all too real, lets himself be tempted to top the knowing put on theatrics of Naldi by flaring his nostrils and popping his eyes. Silent star Mary Pickford was also a fan of Valentino and director Fred Niblo's contributions to this picture. She would say, In my judgment, it is the best thing he, Valentino, has done, and one of Mr. Niblo's finest pictures. It is one of the few pictures... I have been able to sit through twice and enjoy the second time more than the first. A roughly crap ton of folks agreed with Mary Pickford. The filmgoers went full force to make this a box office hit and made it one of 1922's highest grossing pictures. So far, this episode has been a lot of names, dates, and stories of people doing things. 
I figure now is a great time for a bit of a digression. Now, I love a good cocktail slash mixed drink, and I was super excited to learn Blood and Sand has its own cocktail. Also, scotch is my drink of choice, so I pretty geeked out. I was pretty geeked out to learn that there was a mixed drink with scotch. The existence of this drink was brought to my attention by the fine ladies at the Very Vintage Podcast. Thanks for the heads up, and please head over and check out the Very Vintage Podcast for some cool Rudolph Valentina-related stories. The recipe for the Blood and Sand drink first appeared in a 1930s Savoy cocktail book. It's a mixed drink with scotch and vermouth as its primary alcohols. It is served without ice and garnished with maraschino cherry and flamed orange zest. To prepare this drink, take three quarters of scotch, three quarters ounce, three quarters of ounce of scotch, three quarters of an ounce of blood orange juice, three quarters of an ounce sweet vermouth, and three quarters of an ounce of cherry hearing. Pour all ingredients into a cocktail shaker filled with ice cubes. Shake well, strain into a cocktail glass, and flame the orange zest over the top of the glass, and enjoy. Now, back to the biography. Remember that some minutes ago I talked about how Valentino's failed marriage to Gene Acker was completely over with no possible negative outcomes that were in any way possible? Well, nothing with our favorite Latin lover is simple. So now, Valentino's living it up with his special lady, number three in this story, Natasha Rambova. It was on the set of Camille that Valentino and Rambova became officially romantic. They soon got married on May 13, 1922, in Mexicali, Mexico. Two celebrity newlyweds with the whole world in front of them? What could possibly go wrong? A lot, actually. See, back in the day, according to California law, you had to wait one year from the date of your divorce before you could be legally wed again. Which, in this case, Valentino had not been. Which resulted, yep, in another arrest, but this time on bigamy charges. Johnny Law took immediate action, as we learned from Nicolette Wiesel in the Desert Sun newspaper in 2014. Movie star and heartthrob in the 1920s, Rudolph Valentino enjoyed himself in Palm Springs. The actor made several trips to Palm Springs in the teens and 20s for both work and recreation. In 1921, the hit film starring Valentino, The Sheik, was reportedly filmed in the Palm Springs area. Most controversially, however, was his trip to Palm Springs in 1922. Following his wedding to costume-slash-set designer Natasha Rambova in Mexicali, Valentino and his new wife stopped at the Palm Springs Hotel. The hotel was, at this time, under the ownership of sisters Cornelia and Florilla White. Florilla, a friend of the newlyweds, hosted the newlyweds in her cottage. Unfortunately for Valentino, California law at the time required a year to pass after a divorce before remarriage can be considered legal. In Valentino's case, only months had passed since his divorce to actress Gene Acker, and he was subsequently charged with bigamy. The story of Valentino's bigamy hearing was a newspaper sensation featured in publications all across the country. One headline read, Much married film star has bad day in court, first wife present. 
The law began seeking witnesses to testify at the hearing. Florella White, who was also a member at the, of the wedding party, was on their list. White, dubbed Honeymoon Chaperone by Ohio's Star Journal, testified that she herself occupied the double bedroom in, in the Palm Springs Cottage with Winifred Hudnut. Winifred Hudnut was Natasha Rambova's legal name. Another witness claimed that Valentino slept on the porch of his honeymoon cottage at Palm Springs one night and in the front room another night while his bride had the bedroom. Nicolette Wiesel continues, Natasha Rambova's adoptive father, Richard Hudnut, said at the time, my daughter Winifred and Rudolph Valentino decided on their marriage only after consultation with the best legal minds of Southern California. Our confidence in Mr. Valentino is unimpaired. He is a splendid man with plenty of character. While the trial was a sensation, it ultimately led to nothing more than a touch of scandal and a delay in the marital bliss between the two lovebirds. Turning back to the Palm Springs Historical Society, Nicolette Wenzel says, Valentino was later cleared of the charges. He said, My one desire is to be before the law the husband of Miss Hudnut. When I receive my final decree next March, the first thing I shall do will be to marry the one and only girl. If necessary, I shall marry her in every state of the Union to show just how I feel in the matter. Before we move on from Winifred Hudnut, Shaughnessy, nay, Rambova, let's take a quick gander at the young lady who, in many ways, would make a major impact on Valentino's career. Natasha Rambova was born Winifred Kimball Shaughnessy, on June nineteenth, on January nineteenth, eighteen ninety-seven, in Salt Lake City, Utah, she would become Winifred Hunnut after being adopted by her stepfather. Stepfather, she was born into a prominent family. She was raised in San Francisco and educated in England before beginning her career as a dancer, performing under Russian ballet choreographer Theodore Kozlov in New York City. She relocated to Los Angeles at the age of 19, where she became an established costume designer for Hollywood productions. A quick read of an article on utahwomenshistory.org gives a concise, yet informative look at the Hollywood works of the Utah-born Rambova. After a few years in New York, Natasha moved to Los Angeles and became a costume designer and art director for Hollywood Films, one of the few women in Hollywood during the 1920s to serve as a head art designer for film productions. Her designs were grounded in historical accuracy and featured bright colors, baubles, bangles, shimmering draped fabrics, sparkles, and feathers. So now we're coming up on the meeting of Rambova and our man Valentino. She was making decent money and built up solid name recognition in Hollywood circles. It was till she wed Rudolph that she became a celebrity, and with that notoriety came other issues, both professionally and personally. But let's not, again, let's not get too far ahead of our little story here. Coming off the bullfighting success of Blood and Sand and the law-fighting drama of a well-publicized bigamy trial, it was time to try and get back on track, to get back to a normal, everyday run-of-the-mill life of a Hollywood sex symbol. That return to normalcy 
came in the form of The Young Raja. This film came during the forced-slash-legal separation of Valentino and Rambova. The film was written, again, by June Mathis and directed by Phil Rosen. This film was based on a book called Amos Judd by John Ames Mitchell. This film was one of Valentino's most commercially and critically unsuccessful motion pictures. Photoplay, a magazine, described it as the glamorous Rudolph Valentino's latest and worst vehicle. The film is perhaps best remembered today for its elaborate and suggestive costumes which were designed by Valentino's wife, Natasha Rambova. Photographs of Valentino wearing these outfits, some of which leave little to the imagination, are still widely circulated. For a good chunk of time, the young Raja was considered lost. Like many a silent film before, it was basically a ghost. Its fate remained that until 2005 when Turner Classic Movies came riding in as the cable network in shining armor. They had announced that they were financing a restoration of what little footage remained. The film was assembled from poor quality film clips and still photos with additional title screens being added to bridge the gaps in the storyline. In addition, some intertitles were taken from a Spanish language edition and these were translated and replaced with new title screens. At the end of the day, however, the film it just it didn't live up to the studio's expectations and was these feelings by the bigwigs at the studio their feelings were confirmed by the box office receipts. It underperformed to be sure. And Valentino also felt he underperformed, which he thought was a result of having to be separated from Rambova. During this time, the Valentino started to contemplate not going uh, sorry about that. Let me start this over. Rewind. During this time, Valentino started to contemplate not going back to his bosses at Famous Players. Despite Valentino's feelings, Jesse Lasky already had his next picture in preparation. After talking things over with Rambova and his lawyer, Arthur Butler Graham, Valentino declared a one-man strike against Famous Players. The Los Angeles Times Public Library uh, posted an article by author Keith Chafee shedding more light on this battle between the star and the studio. Valentino was still frustrated with his salary. He was earning $1,250 a week and had been offered a raise to $3,000, but that was still less than other major stars of the era were getting. Mary Pickford made $10,000 a week. Valentino announced he would go on strike against famous players. In September 1922, the studio filed a lawsuit against him, but Valentino refused to back down. Famous players was a bit desperate at that particular moment. Their other big star, comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, was caught up in his own scandal at the moment, having been charged with rape and manslaughter. He would eventually be convicted be acquitted and famous players had to shelve several of Arbuckle's movies during the Fuhrer. They offered to raise Valentino's salary to $7,000 a week. That affair, that offer unfortunately leaked to the press which reported it as a new contract before the deal had been finalized. Valentino was furious and began looking for work elsewhere. The studio held firm, exercising its option to extend Valentino's contract, preventing him 
from accepting acting jobs for any other studios. With no film work on the horizon and, a fair bit of, and in a fair bit of debt, Valentino was forced to be creative when it came to making a few bucks. It was true that he was barred from acting, but Valentino, as we learned earlier, had other talents that were capable of making some much-needed cash. And it was time to go on tour. It was January 25th, 1923, Valentino and Rambova began an exhibition dance tour. This cross-country tour would encompass 88-ish stops. This tour was conceived by George Ullman. Valentino met Ullman in late 22. Ullman had done work with the Mineral Lava Beauty Clay Company and thought Valentino would be a perfect spokesman with the ready-made legion of female fans. One event that popped up during this dance tour would be Valentino making the most of an open mic on radio broadcast to put famous players Lasky on blast. He would talk about what is wrong with the movies to put pressure on the studio to get better scripts and productions. Money is not the only thing that Rambova and Valentino would leave the tour with. This article from RudolphValentino.com describes one of the most important stops on the tour for these two lovebirds. It was also during the Chicago stop that the Valentinos planned to remarry. The one-year period of waiting time was over on March 13, and, the Rudolph Valent- and to Rudolph Valentino's frustration, he was still legally unable to make Natasha his bride in the state of Illinois. Hasty plans were made, and on March 14, Valentino, Rambova, and a retinue of friends and witnesses motored eastward across the Illinois border to Crown Point, Indiana, to the Lake County Courthouse for a civil ceremony. With no time for even a brief honeymoon, the Valentinos returned to Chicago to continue the dance tour. With the dance tour ending, change was in the air. 1924, Valentino and famous players did some wheeling and dealing with Ritz-Carlton Pictures. The result of the deal was Ritz-Carlton would take over his contract and offered him $7,500 a week, creative control over his films, and filming in New York, which he preferred, over Hollywood. As good as as the deal sounded, the films under his contract were not entirely successful, and Ritz-Carlton was frustrated by how much money Valentino and Rambova were spending. The major film, theoretically, to come out of this deal was a movie that never actually got to be made. Okay, so I'm kind of thinking that you all are thinking things aren't making much sense. Let's let film preservationist David Shepard tell us a bit about The Hooded Falcon. Imagining that Valentina would outdo Douglas Fairbanks in films notable for scenes of pageantry, athleticism, and daring do, Rambova wrote for Rudy a treatment for an enormous spectacle of medieval Spain to be called the Hooded Falcon. With proposed co-star Nita Naldi, the Valentinos traveled to that country where they spent more than $100,000 of producer J.D. Williams' money on Spanish antiques and props. Rambova committed for the services of other actors. 
Joseph Henneberry, who endured Rombova's interference with his direction of a sainted devil, was engaged for the same task. Although these major talents were attracted by the size and ambition of the hooded falcon, even June Mathis, esteemed sinnerist for Valentino's breakthrough film The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, proved unable to make a coherent script out of Rambova's Spanish story. Needless to say, the status of the hooded falcon was looking grim. So grim, in fact, that the plug was eventually pulled on the project. So, what do you do when you have a director, cast, crew, all signed up and ready to go with no movie to film? If your answer was to hurriedly find a new movie to make with everyone that is already locked in, then you, again, have a future as a movie executive. That last second movie, Switcheroo, would see the ill-fated Hood of Falcon traded in for the film rights to a new stage play. David Shepard relates how that transition was not smooth, not even a little bit. Faced with the pressing necessity of making something, Williams purchased the film rights to a stage play by Martin Brown, Cobra, which had run for a season on Broadway with Judas Anderson and Louis Calhern in the leading parts. But Miss Valentino, who by contract enjoyed with her husband the last word on production decisions, was adamant that Rudy would not be presented either as a beefcake or as an amoral Don Juan. In Cobra, which was released on November 30th, 1925, Valentino played an Italian besieged by troublesome lady drama. So much so, he befriends an American antique dealer who offers him employment and a life free of woman problems. Needless to say, his trouble follows him in the form of a gold digger, Nita Naldi, and an unrequited love with a demure secretary. The production was marred by bickering and soaring production costs. Paramount Pictures had such little faith in the flick that they held off releasing it until Valentino was able to be in a more successful picture. That more successful picture would be The Eagle, and that more successful picture would be Valentino's first under the banner of United Artists. And there's a little interesting quote that kind of encapsulates what's going on with Valentino's life at this point. He says, A man should control his life. Mine is controlling me. This quote from Valentino himself is very apropos of his life at this point in time. The time has come to take a sidestep away from the main character of our story and follow the paths of four of the biggest names in film at the time. We're going to be turning the clock back a little bit, turning it back to 1918, and recount the silent film super team of Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and D.W. Griffith coming together to start United Artists. Sort of like a Avengers Assemble of the silent era. Now, United Artists would be a studio, was put together as a studio that would allow actors to control their own interests instead of being locked into the whims of commercial studios. Now, how does United Artists work into our story so far? Well, after a string of successful pictures 
of, after a string of less successful pictures and problems behind the scenes, Ritz-Carlton Pictures released Valentino from his contract. Valentino was now a free agent, and United Artists saw they, they would be a great fit for a star, the statue of Rudolph Valentino. Keith Chafee explains, Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks were eager to snap him up, though. Their studio, United Artists, offered him $10,000 a week to make only three movies a year. They did require, though, that Rambova not be present on the set of his movies. Valentino's acceptance of that last provision put a strain on his marriage, ultimately leading to divorce. Yes, you heard that right. The lead got a bit buried there. The marriage of Valentino and Rambova was now over, and this contract stipulation was the straw that broke the camel's back. Not that things were candy and milkshakes before that. They were heading down that road for a bit. The fact that Valentino's colleagues weren't big fans of hers did not help the situation. They felt she exercised far too much control over his work, and they blamed her for his recent expensive career flops. In fact, Valentino's feelings for Rambova got so bad that when he died in 1926, in his will, he left her a grand total of one dollar. The Eagle premiered on November 8, 1925. Now, The Eagle would be Valentino's first effort for United Artists. It was based on the 1841 novel Dubrovsky by Alexander Pushkin. It follows the exploits of a lieutenant in the Russian army who catches the eye of Tsarina Catherine II. After he rejects her advances and flees, she puts a warrant out for his arrest. When he learns that his father has been persecuted and killed, he dons a black hat and becomes an outlaw. A little bit of Robin Hood or Zorro or Scarlet Pimpernel action. Multiple roles, uh, do-gooder, that type of thing. Morden Hall, reviewer at the New York Times, said this in 1925 at the premiere of The Eagle. Following the first presentation of the film, Mr. Valentino himself took the stage and thanked the audience for its reception of the picture, adding that he felt sure that by it, he would regain that popularity he enjoyed a few years ago. While he admitted that his preceding photo play, The Sainted Devil, was a poor picture, he refrained from referring to the, pi- the picturization of Martin Brown's play Cobra, which he finished before starting work on the present offering, and which has not yet been released. The Mark Strand was packed. The police were kept busy at the theater entrance holding back the crowd, and an enthusiastic collection of people, after the first show, pressed around the stage entrance, watching eagerly for the screen star's appearance on the street. While Valentino's batch of pre-Eagle films were not world champs critically or financially, The Eagle was a great comeback picture. It was able to tick the boxes that his most recent films had not. Great reviews, yeah. Great profits, yes. This return to form would set the table for his success for the success of his final film, The Son of the Sheik. There is no better example of Valentino's life controlling him than his circumstance between the release of The Eagle and the release of 
the son of the sheik. In an essay for, to the, for the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, Monica Nolan describes some of these circumstances that made Valentino feel a bit out of control of his own life. She says, By 1926, Valentino had changed, too. The survivor of two divorces, a bigamy trial, and contract battles that kept him off screen for more than a year, Valentino was sick of being the sheik. He told a reporter for Colliers in 1925 that if any producer comes to me with a sheik part, I am going to murder him. That hatred of the rule that made him would not last long. Joe Schenk at United Artists would buy the rights to Edith Maud, Edith Maud Hall's Son of the Sheik, which was a sequel to her earlier work that starred Valentino the Sheik. Monica Nolan continues, If Valentino didn't murder Schenk, it was because the 30-year-old was in debt, and the films he'd made since his return to the screen had been financial disappointments. Francis Marion, who wrote the scenario for Son of the Sheik, recalled in her memoir that Valentino was too tired to combat the overwhelming forces that governed his career. The Son of the Sheik continues the Sheiky Baby cinematic universe, if you will. This time, however, Valentino upped the stakes by playing dual roles this time around. This is becoming a little bit of a thing. In The Eagle, three roles in Son of the Sheik, toned it down, just two roles in this one. He also played, he played the Sheik, the older Sheik, and he also played the titular son of the Sheik. In the Son of the Sheik, young Ahmed falls in love with Yasmin, a dancing girl, but is captured and tortured by bandits. Believing Yasmin to be responsible, he escapes and plans his own form of revenge. Although, as in like any good movie, true love, of course, finally prevails. Though not super in love with the role or roles he was playing, Valentino's commitment to the film was unquestionable. In a Library of Congress article, Donna Hill explains, While Valentino cared little for the character he was playing, the production itself was of the quality he had long dreamed of. He was not prone to fooling himself. He knew he was not making high art. Yet, low art or, low art or high, he cared deeply about getting it right. Most of the costumes were designed by Gilbert Adrian, but Valentino also provided authentic costumes, silks, and weapons he'd purchased in France at a cost of over $15,000, which by 2015 standards is $200,000. He went so far as to personally rent Jaden, the horse he rode in the 1921 film for the flashback sequence with Agnes Ayers. Further, he was able to lure the now somewhat stout Ayers out of retirement to reprise her role as Diana. The film opened in Los Angeles on July 9, 1926. During the premiere, Valentino was able to reconcile with June Mathis. Um, over the last couple years, with Rambova and all his contract issues... Him and June Mathis had drifted apart, didn't really talk, and this was the first time in two years that they had gotten back together, and like it had never ended, the, the friendship was rekindled once again. 
It was during July of 26. Now, this is a very strange uh, detour in the life of a celebrity. Uh, and certainly not something if you were writing a story about uh, the life of a celebrity. It's certainly not something you would think would pop up. And it's actually made all the worse knowing that in roughly a month or so he's going to die. That he that Valentino has to go through this, what I'm about to talk about. Has to spend his one of the last months of his life dealing with this, but let's let me tell you a little bit about this. It was during the July of 1926 that another unfortunate series of events befell Rudolph Valentino. Like I said, this guy just cannot cannot win for losing. Sometimes, for the majority of his career, Valentino's masculinity was often questioned. Valentino women saw Valentino as the personification of romance. Men, on the other hand, were not as impressed with the Latin lover. Journalists would question his masculinity, going on about his pomaded hair, his dandyish clothing, his treatment of women, his views on women, and whether he was a feminine or not. In July 1926, the Chicago Tribune reported that a vending machine dispensing pink talcum powder had appeared in an upscale hotel men's washroom. In fact, this is an excerpt of that article. A powder vending machine. Uh, I'll tell you, you can't see it. A lot of exclamation marks. Uh, the, the author of this was quite, quite upset. A powder vending machine in a man's washroom? Homo Americanus? Why didn't someone quietly drown Rudolph Guglielmo alias Valentino years ago? Do women like the type of man, in quotations, who pats pink powder on his face in a public washroom and arranges his coiffure in a public elevator? Hollywood is the national school of masculinity. Rudy, the beautiful gardener's boy, is the prototype of the American male. Yeesh. That is crazy harsh. Needless to say, Valentino did not take that right up well. Not well at all. With Son of the Sheik about to premiere, the press agent for the film thought it would be good business for Valentino to respond in kind. And as a bit of a middle finger to the Chicago Tribune, he shot back to the Tribune's competitor, the Chicago Herald Examiner. This is Valentino's shot back to the man, question mark, who wrote the editorial-headed pink powder puffs in Sunday's Tribune. I call you in return a contemptible coward and to prove which of us is the better man challenge you to a personal test. This back-and-forth battle of the pink powder, fuffs, powder puffs would ultimately end up on the roof of New York's Ambassador Hotel. Valentino challenged the Tribune's anonymous writer to a boxing match, which would be the blow-off to this public feud. However, that match would never happen. While the mystery writer never came forward, New York Evening Journal boxing writer Frank O'Neill volunteered to fight in his place. Valentino accepted and got some training from heavyweight champ, De heavyweight champ Jack Dempsey. Jack Dempsey had actually worked also with Rudolph Valentino before on Cobra for the fight scene in that. So Jack Dempsey has some experience training uh, Rudolph Valentino 
In an article for the Smithsonian Magazine, Gilbert King talks about how the match went down between the powdered, puffed pugilists. The actor quickly agreed to fight him the following afternoon on the roof of the Ambassador Hotel. The next morning, reporters arrived at Valentino's suite, only to see him decked out in an orchid bathing suit and lavender lounging robe. Valentino and O'Neill met on the roof, with reporters and photographers attending, and despite O'Neill's promise that he wouldn't hurt the star, he popped Valentino on the chin with the left. The actor responded by dropping his larger opponent with the left of his own. Somewhat stunned, Valentino apologized and helped the writer to his feet. Despite leaving the rooftop rumble victorious, Valentino continued to be upset and ill at ease about the whole Powder Puff article and ensuing ridiculousness. He was never quite able to tune out the naysayers. In an effort to put his fighting behind him, Valentino attended the New York premiere of The Son of the Sheik. The reviews and reception to Son of the Sheik were largely positive. Many movie reviewers stuck up for Valentino and his manliness in their reviews. His work was appreciated, and reviews and ticket sales backed that up. The film opened first in L.A., and then in New York City. As it opened in other cities, Valentino went on a promotional tour. Unfortunately, Valentino would not get to enjoy the success of his newest feature. The mortal coil clock I talked about earlier that was ticking on Valentino was hitting the end. On August 15, 1926, Valentino collapsed and was rushed to the hospital. He was hospitalized at New York's Polyclinic Hospital. After a series of tests and examinations, he was diagnosed with appendicitis and gastric ulcers. Shortly thereafter, he went under the knife in hopes that surgeons could fix the conditions that ailed him. On August 18, Valentino's medical doctors were fairly optimistic about his prognosis. Valentino himself was rather optimistic as well. Some of the tributes that have affected me the most have come from my fans, friends, men, women, and little children. God bless them. Indeed, I feel that my recovery has been greatly advanced by the encouragement given to me by everyone, he said. Despite the power of positivity, his condition would soon deteriorate. With this downturn in Valentino's health, fans soon flooded the hospital phone lines with calls and well wishes for the star. When Valentino said he was touched by his fans' outreach, he was not kidding. Not even kidding a little bit. The, six, the second sex symbol offered this about those who wished a speedy recovery for him. I have been deeply touched by the many telegrams, cables, and letters that have come to my bedside. It is wonderful to know that I have so many friends and well-wishers, both among those it has been my privilege to meet and among the loyal unknown thousands who have seen me on the screen and whom I have never seen at all. The combined positivity of an adoring public was not enough to save Valentino. Unfortunately, on October 23rd, Valentino slipped into a coma and died hours later surrounded by hospital staff. 
Gilbert King describes the hysteria surrounding Valentino's death. On the news of his death, more than 100,000 people gathered on the streets in chaos outside the Frank Campbell funeral home. The New York Police Department tried to bring order to the mob, and there were reports of despondent fans committing suicide. Inside the funeral home, four black shirt honor guards, supposedly sent by Benito Mussolini, stood nearby in stark tribute to the fallen star. It was later learned that the men were actors hired by the funeral home in, yes, a publicity stunt. And going back to, to the suicides that Gilbert King mentioned, there were at least two official reported suicides. One woman shot herself while clutching a sheaf of uh, Rudolph Valentino pictures. There was also a woman in London who took poison, who poisoned herself, left a suicide note, and was surrounded again by Valentino pictures. Things got so out of hand back in New York that riots broke out on the streets. A riot erupted on the 24th, which lasted all day long. Over 100 mounted police officers were called in to restore order. Now, I'm going to have to ask you loyal listeners out there do yourself a favor and check out footage of this funeral and of the mourners it is a hell of a sight you can find videos on youtube there's document there's a good documentary called the great lover on amazon uh there's footage of it on the the blu-ray edition of blood and sand just this outpouring like the emotion these people pouring out into the streets, it's nuts. If you were just watching it context-free, you would think a president or a royalty died. Like It is just unbelievable stuff that people were so touched and saddened and hysteric about this death that riots broke out, hundreds of thousands of people. It's just, it's wild. So if you can see footage of that, please do. It's... It is a sight. Also, in when you watch these footages, you can see Pola Negri paying her respects. Now, Negri is a bit of an out-of-left-field addition to this story. She was a Polish actress who claimed to be Valentino's fiancé. Um, they had some sort of romantic connection and none of valentino's friends had ever heard that he was uh engaged and once he was dead and wasn't able to refute anything she suddenly became his uh fiance so she was also an actress so she was definitely trying to get uh to get a headline or two out of this so but she claimed to be Valentino's fiance, and of course, there was no one there to refute what she said. She made a show of things worthy of a great stage performance. She would collapse in hysterics in front and over the coffin. It was it was wild stuff. She even had a ton of roses, this whole big rose display, and the roses spelled out her name. And a lot of people, his friends, people in the public, thought that she 
Well, maybe having some connection to Valentina was really playing up her association with him for uh, personal gain. Um, but moving on from that, uh, Valentino's funeral mass in Manhattan was held on August 30th at St. Malachy's Roman Catholic Church. It was a church with a long association with show business figure funerals. After the funeral in New York City, his remains were moved via train from New York to California. A second funeral was held on the West Coast at the Catholic Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills. Uh, for that one, among the honorary pallbearers were Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks. So, with the life of Valentino having come to a close, what is left to learn? I know what you're thinking. Stuart, he's dead. Surely the episode is over. Not so fast. It would not be a complete Golden Silence podcast episode without a where are they now segment and as good old jr would say this one folks is restaurant quality uh, before we lay this episode to rest it is time to find out where your favorite silent age stars are laid to rest this is the segment where we join our beloved matinee idols on the other side of the cemetery entrance the history, the art, and celebrity spectacle of cemetery exploration converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the stars who entertained us so much. After his California funeral, Valentino required a place to be buried. As a deceased 31-year-old movie star, it's not much of a surprise that he didn't spend too much time planning for his last curtain call. Remember earlier when I said Valentino's friend June Mathis would have a hand in his afterlife? Well, this is where she re-enters our hero's story. A quick little rewind here. June Mathis married Italian cinematographer Silvano Balboni on December 20th, 1924. At some point during their marriage, Mathis purchased Crips at Hollywood Memorial Cemetery, which is now Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Alan Ellenberger elaborates on the indecision surrounding Valentino's internment and June Mathis's generosity. He says, After Valentino's death, a decision could not be made as to where the actor's body would finally rest. George Ullman, Valentino's manager, was confident that Alberto, the actor's brother and the person who would have final say, would consent to interring the body in Hollywood. The mayor of Castellaneta, Valentino's birthplace, cabled to Alberto imploring him to have the actor's body returned there for a burial with ceremony. Valentino's sister Maria, who at first wanted her brother brought back to Italy, later concurred with the Hollywood delegation, thanks in part to the suggestion of William Randolph Hearst. To solve the problem, at least temporarily, June Mathis offered her own crypt at Hollywood Cemetery's Cathedral Mausoleum until an appropriate memorial could be decided upon or built. Seems like a solid temporary plan, right? This is going to be a temporary stop. Once everyone figures out what we're going to do with them, we can move them. Good stuff. Solid, well thought out. What could possibly go wrong? I feel like I say this a lot. 
but something did go wrong. A lot, actually. Ellenberger continues. In the meantime, June Mathis died in New York less than a year later. When Valentino's body was placed in her crypt, Mathis had said, You may sleep here, Rudy, until I die. Now, that time had come. A decision had to be made about what to do with Valentino's remains. As a goodwill gesture, Silvano Balboni offered to have Valentino's casket moved to his crypt next to Mathis's until the Valentino estate ironed out its problems. On August 8, 1927, cemetery workers entered the cathedral mausoleum and, what proved to be one last time, moved Valentino's remains to the adjoining crypt. And this became his final stage. To this day, he rests in peace next to dear friend June Mathis. If you want to pay your respects to the great lover, make a trip to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles, California. When you get there, he is located in the Cathedral Mausoleum Corridor A, Crypt Number 1205. Now, probably won't be hard to find because if you do stop by you will not be alone. Valentino's crypt is still one of Hollywood Forever Cemetery's most popular attractions. People are there a lot. One of the people that runs the cemetery said it is their most viewed plot, their most viewed crypt still to this day. As the time passed since Valentino's death a mysterious woman in black would mourn and leave a red rose at his crypt. Different stories emerged over the identity of this woman in black. Some believe it started as a publicity stunt in 1928. Later on, a woman named Dietra Flame actually claimed to be the original woman in black. Whoever it was that started this tradition it is now still something that continues to this day. Every year... On the anniversary of his death, a woman in black will place a red rose at his crypt. Well, that seems like as good a place as any to, to stop. Uh, and with that, it is time to close up the Golden Silence Theater. Before we part, remember to hop on Instagram and check out Golden Silence Cast. Let me know your thoughts and feelings about Valentino. What were your favorite movies of his? What moments in his career were you a fan of? Was there anything I forgot? Head to Golden Silence Cast on Instagram and let me know. And, 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 I cannot stress this enough. I can't end this without thanking my girlfriend, Raffaella, for bearing with me as I try to pronounce Rudolph's full name. Thanks, babe. Also, as I leave, as you leave the showing, please rate and review this little picture show if you are listening on iTunes. If you're enjoying the Golden Silence podcast or not, please let me know. As I record this, the show just hit 300 listens, and though that may be small, I want to thank every one of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. Thank you all so, so much. This has been so much fun, and I can't wait to keep on going with more. So, until the next showing, everybody, remember, the silence are golden, and the talkies are just a fad. <laughs>